So when Liz Fair was a kid, she thought she was going to be a, an artist, a visual artist. And she played and wrote music, but only on the side and only for her. Uh, she ended up in Oberlin studying visual art and continuing to sort of like write and record her own music, but never really did anything with it and was incredibly stage fright. And when she got out, she was challenged by a friend who was in a band to create some tapes of her work. So she set about doing that. And she made these tapes, gave them to another friend who then sent them out to all of these different people and started a buzz that landed her with a record deal that eventually created a record that was released in 1993 called Exile in Guyville, which exploded onto the music scene. Liz quickly found herself on stages of all sizes and being spotlighted on the cover of Rolling Stone, and that launched her career in music. That career has gone through so many different ups and downs and crazy twists. Her life has changed in profound ways. And as I sat here in the studio recording a conversation with her today, a lot of sort of moments, flashes, vignettes from that, that really reveal the essence of who she is, are also shared in a beautiful new memoir called Horror Stories. And we dive into some of that. We dive into critical points along the journey and also the, the deeper drivers and values and beliefs and things that she wants to say and do and how she sees the world. Really amazing, eye-opening, powerful conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. In the early days for you, it sounds like it started out in Ohio, Cincinnati area. Yes. And then Winnetka, beautiful <laughs> oh, suburb, yes. north of Chicago. Where, how old were you actually when you, when you did the jump from uh, Cincinnati to... Uh, fourth grade, fourth really? grade. Do you remember it being... Oh, yeah. Jarring? I remember it very clearly because the year before that, we were back in Cincinnati, but... Before that, we lived in England, which was the first real, like, whoa, we moved somewhere totally different. Like, when I was seven, we spent a year in England. And so that was, like, the wake-up. Life is not just what you think in your backyard. It's actually much, much bigger. And so every move since then has been very impactful to me. Do you have strong memories, vivid memories of your time in England? Very much so. What really stood out from that? Oh, God, mom dragged us to every castle, every <laughs> museum, every cathedral, every ruin, every everything. Like if there was a sight to be seen on the British Isles, we saw it on one weekend. Yeah. I think it's amazing, though, when you go, when you go there, you realize, because you kind of think we have history in this country. Yeah, no. And then you go there and you're like, <laughs> oh, th- this That's is history. like, this goes back like a zillion years where we're like fairly, I mean, I, yes, actually we do have history, Native American history, which is a whole different topic. But yeah, I think when you finally see that, you're like, wow, there is. <laughs> it's a significant jump in your perspective. And I think you never forget it. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of that was, did you actually move there for your dad's work at the time? Or? He took a sabbatical. He wanted uh, to work with uh, Dr. Beatty. I don't know what study it was, but it was a fascinating study to my father. And he wanted to go work for this man, this leading light. And so we found ourselves in Sheffield, England, mm. <laughs> like of all places. And I went to like a little school and I played PE in my knickers and we did all the Stuff. All, all the things. Your mom was an art teacher also. Right? Actually, interestingly enough, and this is going to be in the next book, I spoke with an English accent the entire year. Really? And I don't recall, for such a significant thing, my brother hated me. He was like, stop <laughs> it. Stop it. You're not English. Stop it. People are going to think we kidnapped an English girl. It was just an absolute, it speaks to horror stories, the book, because it as you can see from the chapters, I'm I'm concerned with shame and mm. you know self-consciousness. There's like a lot of that inside me. And I remember when we first got off the plane in England, I think we took a boat ride because we landed in daytime. We couldn't just go to bed. And I heard everyone speaking in an English accent and I didn't want to stand out. I wanted to fit in. I desperately needed to not be sticking out. And so I just started speaking the day that I landed in an English accent all of the time, like at home. I never stopped for the whole year. I started on the first day and I never stopped. And so they got used to it and they just forgot about it. So at first they're probably like, oh, just she's having fun with it. Right. Let her roll with and it. then it was really irritating and then it was probably concerning and then they forgot <sighs> about it. And we just went on with the year and we came back to Cincinnati and we got off the plane and I dropped it. 
Just like that. Like that. And no one was waiting for it. No one expected it. They were like, I mean, really all it shows is that I have a mimic's ear. Right. But it is a very strange thing for a seven-year-old to do. You know, and I, I don't remember it being, I was not theatrical. I was not dramatic as a person. I was not anything. I just yeah. did it. But it shows like a really... An interesting level of self-awareness. Um, Self-consciousness. Yeah. And and not wanting to feel other at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So when you get back from there, immediately you flip back to the U.S. When you're gone for, for a year, especially as an adult, very often you come back to like a different culture, even if it's your own culture, and there's reverse culture shock. Do you have any recollection of experiencing any of that? I don't because I was only eight. Yeah. I do remember feeling really happy to be home. You know, to have all, I remember the vividness of like, oh, this is my old this and Mm. here's my old that and really like touching and cherishing everything in a new way. You know, like I'd found a newfound appreciation and just in time for us to pick up and move to Chicago. So that's how that went down. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Guess what? Um, (laughs) So then you land in Chicago or suburb of Chicago, making all new friends, settling into a whole new place. It sounds like you were sort of like the... Like a fairly typical, hardworking, like academically oriented kid for the better part of your years up until sort of like the tail end of high school. But also there was art running in your veins. Mm-hmm. When does mm-hmm. it, where does that start to show up? Very early, yeah. before England, before anything. Like I just, as soon as I had a pencil in my hand, I wanted to draw. And I guess I was pretty good at it from a young age. I have creative talents. Right. I don't necessarily know how to make the most of them, but I can't stop doing it. What was your sort of a palette or tool of choice when you were younger? Always drawing. Yeah. I mean, in college, I ended up doing large scale charcoal drawings, which is very messy. Like I destroyed a studio in one of the off-campus houses. I remember I like left it. (gasps) I left it for like the cleaner uppers to clean up. I did that. I did this horrible thing. Oh, should push it or put that in that book. I know, right? (laughs) It's like, oops, I just remember that. (laughs) It's going in the next. I did a very, very bad thing. Going in the part. Going in the part. Quickly, let me get on the computer and write the Um, demon out of me. I mean, it's interesting. What was the draw to scale for you? I wanted you to get at that point at Oberlin. I was doing a very particular series. I thought I was going to be a visual artist. I had no idea that I would ever do anything in music. I wrote songs. I played them privately, but I had terrible stage fright. Like I would not be the person who would jump up on stage ever. So I was doing this visual series about disease, actually, because my father was an infectious disease specialist. And when AIDS hit in the 80s, like I really got a front row seat for that like before they knew if it was contagious, before they knew what was happening to these people, like the terror of my father not being able to help someone. Mm. Like they come in with like multiple problems because the immune system is compromised. And it just really did a number on my head. It made me like wary of being sexually promiscuous. It also made me think about, and this is what I did the art about. If your body betrays you, if your body suddenly becomes almost like the enemy. Where are you? Like if your body isn't you, Hmm. where are you? And where is the humanity in these people who are being overcome and ravaged by illness? 
And I thought about it and I really decided like that the eyes would be a great symbol to anchor you looking at a piece of art. If I had Hmm. big, realistic, soulful eyes, then whatever was going on with the skin and the face and whatever, you would connect to that person and see that person as like you, even while we have that and I think it's a natural human reaction to sort of recoil from anything that looks too different or feels like threatening. And I wanted to kind of bring the humanity out in people that were pictured in medical textbooks, even back in the day in Victorian times, you know, they're sort of like held up next to a yardstick or measured, or they were put in these weird positions where they were like scrutinized by the medical community. And it looked so isolating and dehumanizing in these poor haunted eyes of people that are like, can someone help me? They're like, no, we're going to study you. <laughs> you know, like, and I just started thinking about- We're going to use about, you to help yeah. other people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you're, but you're gone. Yeah. You're gone. That is so interesting, right? Because where my mind goes with that is that it, if you start to sort of draw this gateway, you know, through the eyes, but if it's the eyes of somebody who's in a deep suffering, there's got to be this really weird tension of not Wanting to it. identify. Right, exactly. You know, because then you might have to feel yes. what you're, what's being depicted, they're feeling. And that it could happen to you. Yeah. That's the problem is that like the fear of the other is really a fear of the self being betrayed. Yeah. Was that what you were trying to get at with that word? Yeah. Hmm. So you, you go from there being focused largely visual arts. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel like that was, was this, is this? Was this the thing that you were doing at Oberlin because it was interesting to you? Or in your mind, is this actually, this is what I'm going to do after career this path, thing? Absolute ca- career path. And I was very serious about it. Like I got myself an internship with Nancy Spiro and Leon Golub. New York, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right near Washington Square Park. Right. And I um, also interned for the artist, the Chicago artist, Ed Paschke. And then a printmaker here and an archivist and a painter so I, I started interning for what I considered great artists to right. try to learn from them. You're doing all the things that you would do to start to build a career, a career. in that space. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you had, so you, you're writing music, playing music, I'm guessing also, but only for yourself. Yes. <laughs> Friends are really no. just for you. What was it for you? Was it a creative outlet? Was it just like, did it, what job was that? What, it was a hobby. Was it? It was fun. It was, it was just, just fun. A hobby. It was like a diary. Yeah. It served the purpose of a diary. Mm. Except kind of a fictionalized one. I don't know why or how I learned to write my own songs. They just came because I didn't want to practice. You know, I played piano and I didn't like reading music and I wasn't interested in the pieces that I was learning. And I just started making up songs because my mother would hear that I was on the piano doing something. So she'd be in cooking dinner or talking on the phone and she'd hear that I was working. So it constituted practice time, but I was making up my own music and I did the same thing on guitar. Uh, As you're saying, it constituted practice time, (laughs) like the mandatory for paying for lessons, you're going to practice. That's exactly right. (laughs) Oh my God. I had this like flashback to when I was in sixth grade and the exact same thing, but back in the day where we had like the cassette recorders. I literally remember recording myself playing scales on a guitar 
And then just sitting in my room with the door closed, looping the tape, like re- re- rewinding. So I didn't have oh to practice. Oh my God, so you didn't yeah, have to yeah, practice? That so like is if you hilarious. listen to the door, you would hear. Ferris Bueller, where right? have you been? I know, you know it's like... crazy, crazy. Um, and meanwhile, I think so far forward, I'm like, man, I wish I had actually put in the practice. Mm. Um, but yeah. Um, so you're doing this and it's really just for you. Um, starting on piano, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. When do you start to pick up the guitar? Eighth grade. Why? What makes you... Uh, My best friend, Anne, switched from piano to guitar, and I thought that was cooler. Yeah. Whatever Anne had, if she had, like, the latest clogs, I wanted that, too. Or if she had, like, four ferrile sweaters, I wanted at least three. (laughs) (laughs) Not that there was a competition. No, not at all. (laughs) We're still close friends. She's, like, my (laughs) sister still. That's awesome. You And you're writing also at the same time. Writing music? Yeah, and lyrics. Yeah. Absolutely. Were you a writer or a journaler before that? No. I I fancied myself a poet. And honestly, I can honestly say they were bad poems. They were bad. I didn't, I wasn't a good lyricist, I think, until I went to Oberlin, until I went to college. Something about the music conservatory being a part of that school mm. took music. And, and everyone who went, who was in the liberal arts program, and not the conservatory, was still very musical. And there were bands everywhere. Right. Everybody was in a band. You know, everybody was jumping up on stage at parties and singing and performing. And they weren't all very good. But it gave me that sense that I could do that and should do that. Yeah. But stage right. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting to me, though, because it's almost like when you finally do actually start to step up in front of people and share your music, you know, what you, what you share is bold and it's real and it's, it's got a lot of similarities to what you described you were doing as a visual artist, Mm -hmm. which is like, you wanted to, you didn't want to, you wanted to make big statements and provoke and make people think and make people feel as a visual artist. And it sounds like that just transferred right into music right away. Yeah. It did. It did. And I I would probably credit my mother and all those museum visits and all Mm. those cathedrals and all those castles. Like I had been, she was a, she was a docent at the Art Institute in Cincinnati and then in Chicago for like 40 years, 50 years. So I had been dragged around being shown art and being, having it explained as this is a provocative statement. The artist wants you to feel this. So I, when I thought of being an artist, I would hear my mother's language about it. You know, they're making a statement and it was provocative. And so I guess I had a framework that no matter how big what my statements were, they were nothing compared to the great works of mankind you know, so it didn't seem so daunting to me because my bar was pretty high. Yeah, which is interesting. So it's like your mom plays a really pivotal role in your willingness to, quote, go there with the work that you're creating. <laughs> that poor woman never intended <laughs> for well, me to do right, that. But this is my <laughs> you know, curiosity because like, <laughs> when you come out and 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 your, your, your lyrics and your music is, is so raw and so bare and so powerful, and just hitting straight at so many of the things that so many people are feeling but not willing to put words to, but also provocative and things that maybe in, quote, polite culture, especially at that time, you didn't talk about. Curious what the how that landed with your mom, who kind of <laughs> knows that she has planted this seed, but all of a sudden, like, oh, 
oh, that. <laughs> so that's how that group right. did it. You know, she was, I mean, I think, I, I do remember her saying, and she said it over the years, she's always supportive, never not supportive. She may caution me at various times. She would certainly prefer I did not air publicly any of this stuff. You know, like that was definitely something that was hard for her. And I think it wasn't until people came up to her over the years and said, your daughter means so much to me. She helped me through this time or that time. And she liked all those women that were coming up. You know, she thought they were smart and nice people. And suddenly that framed it differently. And, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> poor mom. The, <laughs> the joke's a little bit on her, you know, like, like I don't think she's particularly thrilled about this either. You know, like I, but she, Certainly texted this morning saying, go author, go, you know, oh, like she's great. there really behind me. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it's amazing to, as a parent also, we're both parents right now also, to sort of like be in that role where the one point you want your kid to be in, completely and fully alive and expressed. And at the same time, there can be fear wrapped around that, like fear mm -hmm. for their safety, fear for how they're going to be perceived in the world, fear for their ability to to find belonging and acceptance. So I think it's like I, you kind of get it from both sides mm -hmm. a little bit later in mm -hmm. life, I think. You understand so much when you're a parent. Yeah, It finally unlocks so many mysteries about life. You're like, oh, that's that. Oh, I see. Ah, I get it. You know, it really kind of, for me at least... <laughs> explained so much. I could forgive. I could kind of just understand what I was seeing when I was younger, why they behaved the way they did, what they cared about. And up until then, I was just self-involved and rebelling against any kind of authority. Thought authority in general was bankrupt. And then you realize raising a child is kind of constructing a small piece of the future. And that society's really just made up of tiny, small parts of people doing one thing or two things with each other. And it just becomes this giant colony. And then it looks different to you. And then you think, well, this is just what we've made. It's our best idea at the moment. You know, like this room for improvement. Like suddenly history made sense to me. History, we're still writing it. If you write it, you're going to tell a different history than I would tell. And if enough people agree that this was an important thing and this wasn't an important thing, well, suddenly this thing that happened concurrently with this thing is now forgotten and this thing is remembered. And that fascinated me because then I thought, I want to write stories. Yeah. Um, facts are facts are subject to so much context and memory and, yeah. and power. Power. You know, like history... The history that's told, I think, is in no small part. It's not just about what happened. It's about who was in power and has maintained in power while it's happened. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Whose history are we telling? Yeah. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So, have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So, I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. So you end up um, Oberlin... When was the first time, I'm curious, you actually step on stage? I know you're writing music when you're at Overland, but did you actually perform while you were there or was oh, it no. not until later? I would never have performed. I, To this day, if you asked me to play a song for you, I would start stammering and shaking. Okay, so we're not going to pull a guitar down from the wall over here. But something about having gone on stage with a band enough times, if... I always tell my management, don't keep me off the road too long. Because mm. if I get used to not being on stage, I won't want to go back up on it. But if you keep me like playing enough, 
then it's like a muscle memory and I can enjoy myself, which it's such a relief not to experience crippling stage fright that, you know, I actually will embrace something that arguably is like the least likely thing for me to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's almost like it's exposure therapy. Like it kind of once is. Once you're doing it and you're out there doing it, it's sort of like it dials down the anxiety. It does. But as soon as you pull away from it, you don't have that repeated exposure. So your mind can spin about what might happen when you step back on without being interrupted by saying like, oh, now it's actually okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mind, my imagination makes it into a bigger and bigger and bigger thing the longer I am away from it and the less I can see myself up there. Yeah. So you end up after Oberlin in San Francisco for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, How do you know all this? You know everything. Okay, Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, what do frogs dream of? <laughs> no, like, well, what kind so, of frogs? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Poison dart frogs. South African frogs. Yes. Canadian frogs. Right. Um, and, and when you're there, it sounds like that's a lot of when you start to really s- sort of record stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or is that more when you move back home, which I guess was shortly after that? But it was started by Chris Brokaw coming okay. to visit us. And he's a musician from the band Pay the Man at Oberlin. That was like the best band on campus and they were really good. And Chris was the lead singer and songwriter of that. I used to go to Oberlin shows and like of all the bands that were on campus, Bitch Magnet gave it a good run for its money, but it was always Pay the Man. Pay the Man was like the number one band on campus. It's probably saying a lot considering the music department at that school. (laughs) That was an incredible experience. That was one of the best things about Oberlin. Besides the art department, that was what I loved the most was how much music was everywhere and how many people did it who were not professional, you know? So in San Francisco, Chris came and it was very awkward with my roommate or my, my loft mate that he was coming to see. Something went wrong between them. And so I hung out with him for the weekend and he kept sort of, he kept saying like, play me a song, play me a song. I'm like, no, I cannot play you a song. This is for me, not for other humans. (laughs) Right, I just couldn't even do it. And then he said, make me a tape, just record them Hmm. and send them to me. So I went home after San Francisco because I ran out of money and I didn't want to get a job. So I went home and my parents were like helping me tackle adulting. And all I wanted to do was get out of my parents' house at that point. So I would go to their friends' houses who happened to be out of town and needed someone to water their plants. Yeah. It's like we all had those back in the day. Yeah. The task chem portrait. <laughs> yeah. So you just... pro tools, like easy right. to use. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one, add another layer, add right. another layer. So you're hanging out in random people's houses, bringing your little kit over and mm-hmm. just recording tapes. Mm-hmm. And this adds up to a whole bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. Because I'd been writing for so long, I had them already. I and mean, I was right. making more, but I had a bunch. Right. And you, so you're just basically, you're laying your, your own voice, you on guitar also. Mm-hmm. Any percussion? No percussion. I would speed up the track at the end to make myself sound even more girly. And I called it girly sound. Right. Because it was sort of like an Oberlin political thing that, I think there was a course, an intellectual history course, where someone had said something, some professor had said, the young female voice has the least authority in society or something. And I just started thinking about that because I felt like a young female. So I was like, hmm, hmm. 
And I wanted to see if I could say really provocative, shocking things in a little girl voice. And would you notice or would you be like, oh, yes, nice, dear, nice, you know? So that was sort of the origin of my style that persists. Can I be who I am, which is essentially a non-threatening person, and say really provocative, shocking things? And will people hear it? And they did. Yeah. More than I expected. It's This is the musical extension of the eyes on the ill person and mm-hmm. the chunk drawings. Like it's the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Um, those tapes then end up back with Chris. Chris and Taewon Yu, right. who's a printmaker. I think he lives in Brooklyn. Um, and Taewon is like, these aren't just for me. <laughs> No, Tay makes like a million copies and sends them everywhere. And I had no idea why people kept sending me like $10 bills in the mail. Like, will you make a tape for me? And like, eh, no, but I'll keep your 10. Mm-hmm. You know, like another bad thing that I've done. I've done so many bad things. But yeah, no, he he came to a show last year. And my, my once Matador, once I recorded Exile in Guyville, he really didn't feel that that was for him. He liked the girly sound stuff and he was very honest about it. You know, he was like, it just wasn't for me. I didn't feel that that was, that felt too commercial for him. Mm. <laughs> like Exile and Guyville, arguably one of the low fiest records right. of the 90s. But it, it just wasn't right. It right. wasn't for him. And so we stayed in contact with each other, especially in and around the career requests that would come in. And then he finally came to see me perform as a fully grown you know, woman with a band, kind yeah, of like last year. doing my thing right during the Kavanaugh hearing. So we were like here in New York and everyone came out and they were just like full of like, yes, rock that exile and Guyville. And he saw it and he was like, I get it. It's not about production style. It's about the songs still. They're mm. all just songs to you and the production doesn't matter. And I'm like, yeah, that's just clothes you wear. The song is the song. You can dress it up fancy. You can dress it up casual. You can do whatever you want. You can leave it naked. Or you can put it in a crown and ermine robes. You know, whatever you'd like. Yeah. I mean, must have been. when was the last time that you had been in contact with him before that? Or he had even seen you perform? I don't think he'd ever seen me perform. No kidding. Yeah, I don't it think was he ever just, saw it. It was just that. So he, he knew the girly sound tapes, and then he saw the wow. full winged creature that, you know, descended upon New York City in the middle of a major tour. Right, because you end up, the tapes end up connecting you to Matador, and mm-hmm. then that leads to Exile in Guyville, which comes out in 93, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so um, so literally, like, since then, and that, that this was like the, the person who played a really, you could argue, a critical role in you becoming known and then moving into this world of music had never seen you perform until Mm-mm. last year. And we were hugging each other in the backstage and like everyone was taller than us. We were sort of down in our own little altitude yeah. and like it was packed. It was a really good backstage. That was like top tier backstage. And it was just us. And I'm like, Tay you're responsible for this. And he's like, no, I'm not. You're responsible for this. I'm like, but you're responsible for this. You know, it was really cute. It was a beautiful closure-ish moment of more of a full circle moment, but it was beautiful. Yeah. Let's talk for a moment about this album, um, Exile. It comes out in 93. It's 
basically the mythology is it's, it's your response to the stones um, because you perceive them as like the prototypical guy band, but also kind of like the prototypical guys in the industry. And there needs to be a different lens. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly more. right. I conceived of it as a conversation I was having with that record. And the guy that I had a crush on at the time, who was the lead singer of Urge Overkill, I was mad for him, but I was also afraid of him. Hmm. So that was sort of like this, I felt like a skipping stone, sort of like look for him all the time, but then kind of chicken out about actually getting together or anything. I conceived that Mick was actually speaking Nash's words and I was going to answer that. And like if in the song they were talking, you know, if Mick was referencing a woman, I saw myself as the woman character and I was writing a song from that point of view in the same scene that Mick was in. And then I kind of structured my songs differently to, I, I was very, because of my mother, I was sophisticated artistically in a way that I shouldn't have been. I had no right to be as sophisticated artistically as I was because she'd sort of put all the good stuff in my whole life. This is great art. This is why it's great. This is what they were doing. Can you see how they made those brush strokes? What does that mean to you? Like she talked me through everything. So I knew not to be too on the nose about the arrangements, but to kind of like evoke the arrangements and put a nod toward one and then completely go the other way with another. Mm-hmm. And I, it really flummoxed everyone in the music industry. They're like, it doesn't sound like, you know, Exile Main Street. And they saw me, they perceived me as this ingenue who could barely play. So they thought it was like my best shot that I'd taken at imitating the Stones. And I'm like, no, maybe I can't perform, but intellectually, I know how to make art. I know how to make a convert. I know how to make art reference itself and talk to itself. I know how to do that because I was trained to. So sophisticated training, utterly inexperienced doing. And it also, I mean, it comes out in, comes out in the words, um, but also there's something I think so powerful about the simplicity of the actual, the, the instruments, like the, you know, I mean, there were some power riffs and there were some really good stuff and you had other people help out with it, but it was like, the focus was really on what is she saying? Yeah. You know, yes, it moved you. And yes, there was really, really awesome music, but like the words, like just, wow, it kind of blew your hair back, back in the day when I had hair. <laughs> um, so that comes out and, and it kind of explodes into the world. It just like takes over landscape. It's also at a moment in time, you know, like early nineties when like, you're not, you, there, there are a small group of women who are kind of stepping out and saying this, it's time. Mm-hmm. It's time. PJ, Tori Amos, Courtney Love. Right. Ani DeFranco. Right Ani DeFranco. Also, right? Yeah. So there's like this emerging movement also. And you're, and you're a big part of this. The, the record becomes you know, like one of the biggest records. You find yourself, two things happen, right? One, you end up on the cover of Rolling Stone. Curious what that felt like to you. And two, mm-hmm. now you're on stages. Yeah. <laughs> performing in front of a lot of people. Which is a never-ending problem. Right, right. Like, it's the problem of my whole life. Like, wait, the whole deal is I record tapes. I, I don't ever have to go on stage. I draw and somebody else does something with it once it's done. This was not part of the bargain. Right. <laughs> and now it's my job. Right. <laughs> it's like the main part of my job. 
So how does it feel to you when like you're stepping up there and it's like you in front of all these people? It's unnerving. It yeah. is a, it is still unnerving. If you, if, like I said, if I get in the groove, it's nothing. It's like, this is what I do. This is what I do. And I feel very comfortable and I can make other people comfortable. I can be generous with my confidence, if you will, and my security at that point. But personally and privately, I always joke, like if, if someone said to me, you can reach people and people can feel your music and you don't ever have to go on stage again, I'd be like, fine, <laughs> cool. <laughs> There'd probably be a couple times a year when I saw people doing it that like my muscles would be like, oh, I don't want to go yeah. on that. But you know, I'm sure I could get away with just a guest appearance here and there and that would probably satisfy me just fine. So it's, it's a weird thing. Life is a weird thing. It just keeps going and you keep rolling with the punches and climbing toward what you want. And then you get there and you find out it's not what you want. So you head off in another direction and climb that mountain, you know, and roll with the punches and pick yourself up uh, when you fall down. And then you wind up here with you who knows everything about my life that I don't even really remember about my life. It's the cameras. We've been following you for well, a long, long time. <laughs> but it feels like something. When yeah. you say it back to me, it feels, I mean, I feel prouder of myself when you say it back like that because it does feel like something. Like I've done remarkable things in my life. But the day-to-day -day living of it still feels like, oh God, when do I have to be in the New Yorker stage? You know, like I'm right. sort of like T minus how long before I start fretting? Do yeah. I remember how to play songs? Why do they want me up there? Am I good at this? You know, like it all comes tumbling back in. Are you somebody who's in your head? Totally. Oh, yeah. But I'm also, here's the real hat trick of me. Yeah. This is what I think is the essential, like why her? Because I'm equal parts in my body and my head. Tell me more. Most people pick one or the other. Most people prefer the life of the mind and they're not very physical or they're very physical and they don't really want to, you know. Yeah, I'll buy that. And people that do both, I think, have a particular watchability because you're getting the full, you're getting like, they're putting all their stuff out there. They're not holding back. They're not, someone is having a really interesting conversation with you, but they're not actually freaking you out physically or you know, but people that do both, I think it just, it freaks people out. And it, it's, it, I think it's magnetic because I'm drawn to people like that. And I think that that's my secret sauce if I had one. Yeah. I mean, just thinking, thinking about it now, I, I think I agree. Um, is anything, I, I wonder if the reason that's so magnetic also is because it's so uncommon. Maybe, probably. And especially in women, women don't, they do now, but they didn't back then. They would stifle themselves to be, to fit in better. I did it too, you know, but I felt like the highest aim I could go for would to be both. Like, so that's why the sexuality coupled with the good girl image is so jarring because clearly I'm like a nerdy bookish. You can feel that. You can tell that you could leave me in this room for a couple hours and I would find something to do with myself and be perfectly happy. At the same time, if you said we were going to go run out wilding tonight and go dance our ass off and, you know, make out with someone we don't know, I'm right there with you. Like, I'm right there. Yeah. I almost wonder if it's a, if it's a feeling of permission, you know, because mm -hmm. so many people mm -hmm. will see, will see in you or see in people who have this 
it, instead of duality or instead of choosing one or the other, like, oh, so you can be that and that at the same time and still be okay and still feel good about yourself and still feel a sense of belonging and still feel loved and still be, quote, successful in life and flourish. And it's like it gives somebody permission to say, like, Ooh, maybe me too. We live in the era of Lizzo. Yeah. Like it oh, is, God. we so have a, awesome. we have arrived in the era of you can be yes and instead yeah. of either or. And that's why I think when people are like, oh God, this Me Too movement or the feminism or like, stop. It's a better world. It's a better life for everybody. And I think it's mishandled in the wrong hands or misspoken in the wrong tongue, but it, it's envisioning a better world. Like if women are freer and safer, men will be freer and safer from their own role responsibilities to a certain extent. I mean, going to war does not sound like fun. And yet that's something every male has to grow up knowing is a possibility. And that blows my mind. You know, as we're talking about what women need, what about men? What about not growing up feeling like you have to toughen yourself because you might have to kill or be killed at some point? That's something that guys grow up living with. However they approach that, however they decide I don't participate or I'm just going to throw myself into a fight so I'm not scared of it or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, women and men are socialized entirely differently, at least in the U.S. I think it's different culturally in different places, but in the U.S. and probably just a lot of sort of developed Western countries, it's really similar in that. And that's why when so much of what you're talking about, so much of the way that you've developed your your art and your craft and your presence, it just keeps constantly challenging that and showing that there is another way. And it feels like you were doing that in the early 90s and you've done that in a various different ways over the last couple of decades. And now in the last five years, the world is starting, like that that ideal is starting to kind of just like really expand in a pretty profound way, which I agree, it's disruptive. It's shaking a lot of branches and trees and it's really good, you know, because we we need that. Like we need it on an individual level, but we also need it on a societal level. Like the benefit that happens beyond just the individual, but wide scale we need right now. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolutionary success story. It's saying, we can conceive of a time when we're going to move past sort of these old paradigms where we had to kill or be killed or, you know, like it's, it's what do they call it? Problems of success. Hmm. To be able to consider these things as a society shows how wealthy we are. And this is, I guess, what everyone's feeling. Like if we've got this situation that we're in right now and we suddenly realize it can be taken away, what is the best way we could be within this situation? And suddenly, yeah. I don't know what it was. Was it Obama? Like, was that enough of a paradigm shift to wake people up and say, like, limits are in your head? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's one thing. Um, but I also... I, I do think that was a part of it. I think it was a part of it for sure. I think the political landscape over the last decade in different ways has played a role in it. But also, like it, it couldn't have happened without there's an energy that's been building. There's a tension that is partly about a desire to, to a reclamation type of energy. 
that's been building and a willingness to step out and say, like the pressure's too much. <laughs> yeah. Like the release valve like has to happen and, and, and not so everyone can just feel okay by blowing off a little steam, but no, legitimate organic grassroots change. Yes. At the end of the day. I, yes. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So jumping back into your journey, um, you explode onto the scene, um, become a big part of this scene also. A couple years into that, Lil' Affair starts also. You become involved in that, which is amazing to see for the first time completely women created and run and on the stage and in the festival scene and in the music scene, which kind of just changes everything, it felt like, at least from my perspective. Did, did from the inside out, being a part of that, did it feel like that to you also? It absolutely did. And when you were talking about like people sort of starting those, those female artists around the same time that I broke out in the 90s, you know, early 90s, 
felt like it culminated with Lilith mm. Fair because like- Yeah, that would be late 90s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these strong women came together and the industry absolutely separated us. They did it intentionally because they thought people didn't want to hear female music. So they would, and this has been absolutely like- validated by people who were there and knew what the programmers were doing. And I don't think it was like, ha ha, let's keep women down. They just didn't, th they didn't want to alienate their male audience. So you couldn't play a woman back to back with another female artist and you couldn't have more than one every half an hour or something at, like that. At other festivals. No, it just, at radio stations radio. and no kidding. on bills and in bands, like you could yeah. have one female, but you shouldn't have like a bunch of them. Like, and it was, it was really hard baked in. And so it made women threatened by each other and it made them competitive because we were competing. We were competing for very small s slots. And if one of us got it, the other one didn't. And none of this was based on anything except conjecture by a bunch of programmers that their audience wouldn't like it, but they had no basis for that. They just decided it. And so when Lilith happened to be supportive of each other, all different kinds of artists, all different genres to just, you know, back to back to back, woman, 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 and have everybody coming to see it and loving the music and having the festival run so beautifully. It was like a window to a future world. It was like, hello, that's a new landscape and I could thrive in that. And up until that point, it was a couple of things. It was having my child, but also Lilith Fair. I don't think I would have stayed in the industry without it. If I hadn't seen those women and gotten to know them and saw a vision of what life could be like, like it is in 2019, when I go out and I see tons of female artists everywhere and they're all doing their own thing. And the young women have like totally unique expressions and they're in command of their careers and saying how they want to do things. That was in its nascent stage in Lilith Fair. Like, that's what I saw. And I said, okay, I'll work in this industry and maybe it's not here yet, but I'll keep working until it is here. Yeah. When, so that ran, Lilith was 97 to 99 or something like that, 96 to 99, some, something like that. 98 to 2000. Right, maybe right around there. When that ends, and, and you're like, okay, but I still have a career and I, which means I kind of need to go back into the industry, which means to a certain extent, the way things were outside of this incredible experience, is that jarring for you? It was very jarring. And I had some of my most upsetting incidents post Lilith Fair. It got definitely very gross and ugly for a while there, especially in the pop world, because that was, Matador was the indie label that I was signed to, but they were interested at that point. A lot of major labels were buying up indie labels or partnering with them. So at first they went to Atlantic and then that didn't work. And so they took us all to Capital. And I did White Chocolate Space Egg with Matador and Capital. And then they decided that wasn't a good fruitful partnership. So Matador left Capital, the major label, but Capital retained me as a valuable asset that they had worked on that they didn't want to give up. And so that was part of the parting. I was like, you know, given in the deal. Right. It's like you're being traded. Kind of. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, well, like a baseball me? player or yeah. something. And I found myself on a major label 
having never signed to a major label. And I, I felt, I felt like it was sink or swim. Like everything was turning pop. That was like the boy band era in the aughts. I didn't know anyone at Capitol. I had to make all new like connections and figure out how to matter to them. And how to matter to them at that point was to do pop work. So I, I recorded all these different pieces of music, like with my touring band and then with Michael Penn and then finally The Matrix until we got something that had enough material. I'm really proud of that record. There's a lot of great songwriting on that record. And part of it is the pop stuff. There's like one or two pop songs that I'm not so fond of playing, but that was what I did based on the circumstances that I found myself in. Yeah, and, and you're also at that point, I mean, cause you had sort of built your reputation and your fan base on kind of being the edgy indie almost like you're the revolutionary, like you're the counter mm -hmm. to the big label. <laughs> so when you go to a big label, like I almost wonder if it, it almost didn't matter what you put out with them. It was simply the association it that would like, cause It was like Lindsey Graham suddenly like, you know, like John McCain's out of the picture and he's like, hi, Trump, <laughs> how are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure that's what it looked like. I could, I know that's what it looked like to them. And to some extent, that's true. But to another extent, if you go back to the girly sound and you go back to my suburban lifestyle, I really wasn't faking it. I wasn't reaching for something that wasn't in my wheelhouse. I was just going toward a different aspect of myself that was authentic. It just was, I used to listen to radio and pop and go to big concerts when I was young and I liked it. Yeah. But I think music is also this really interesting domain where... You know, we've all heard this term, stay in your lane, right? But I think in music, almost more than any other, especially performing art to art, people liked, like people want to label you. They want to, this is, this is the Liz Fair style, right? <laughs> like this is what you do, you know? I remember when Mumford and Son like switched over and did an electronic album, it was like all of a sudden everyone was like, what? <laughs> um, and it's like, when you do that, people they don't want to change that. I mean, and, and if it's, if it's not what they have in your mind, like you do this thing, this is you forever. Cause that's how I want you to stay in my mind. And you're like, no, I got to do me. Even if it means I'm going to evolve and change and leave my lane and build five other ones, people don't want that. But I'm curious for you, cause you're in a window in your life when you're doing that, right? At that point, you're a mom also single at that point too. So, so part of you is, is got to be saying, okay, I'm in this really brutal business. And I also have to take care of my family. It's like, was there an inner dialogue with you at all that's saying, okay, so where's the line between me earning a living and being okay and, and being authentic and true to my art? The line really, I didn't feel the line until I had to sing the words, oh baby, you know what you're like, you're like my favorite underwear. And that was my line. I was like, I hate that. I'm not saying that. And Lauren took me out, the other songwriter, the pop from the matrix, walked me around the block and kind of convinced me to sing it. She was wrong, I think in the end. <laughs> but um, my line was pretty far from what people would want it to be. And I think that's because they gravely underestimated what was driving my output that I was 
I was way more of an artist artist than they realized. They mistook me for a musician, which mm. I am. But first and foremost, before anything else, I'm an artist. Forget the medium. Forget any of that stuff that you know about like, you know, Liz Fair's sound is this way because Liz Fair is this way. No, Liz Fair is an artist and Liz Fair will don any kind of way to be. If it's a memoir and it's personal, you better believe I'm going to be real. I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to tell you stuff that most people don't tell each other. But if I'm going to be a pop sensation, I'm going to like think about how to be a pop sensation. And I'm going to do that. Like the artist rules everything. And the genre or the medium mm. is a, a second step. That's the secondary like choice. But it's a choice rather than the artist, which is not a choice. Yeah. It, it, it feels almost like the... The genre is sort of like, oh, so this is an interesting new creative constraint within which I can work to express my art, which kind of raises the game. Like as the artist, well, what can I do within this sort of like within this constraint? Yeah. I didn't think, oh, I feel like going pop now. Right. I found myself on Capitol Records and pop was the thing right. and I had no allies. I was like by myself in this major label and I, I decided I wanted to matter. I wanted to be cared about and I wanted to do something. So I adapted to that. Like, I mean, I don't think that's so weird. <laughs> you know, like, It might be offensive at the time because of a misunderstanding, but I just don't think it was, I think that's what I was trying to say in all those interviews. Like, it's just music. It's okay. Like, I'm still me. I didn't hurt anyone. I just made different kind of music. Yeah. Expressing a different side of myself because that's where I found myself. Mm. And I just, I'm more of a, if you're sinking and swimming, I'm swimming. Yeah. People don't always want to hear that. It's like they layer their expectations about what you should or shouldn't do um, onto you, especially when you're held in a certain esteem as representing some, as representing a moment and an ideal in their life. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you start to change and evolve, it makes them question, I think, I wonder if the thing that really bothers people about that is it makes them question their own identity and their own sense of values and their own almost unwillingness to define their own lives and move forward and run their own experiments rather than sort of like always follow somebody else's lead and let somebody else voice what, what's unvoiced by them. I think they felt a great sense of betrayal because they had vouched for me in a way. They had said, we're going to put our full weight, which isn't true. In the beginning, they were completely awful about Guyville. Like, this is what no one remembers. Now it's like this shining example of the best art she ever made and everybody loved it. Why would you do anything else? That's not at all how it went down. It was ugly in the beginning. People were not just immediately saying what a brilliant person I was. It was hugely controversial. Half the people were saying I was a complete fraud. I couldn't play. I couldn't sing. It's because I'm blonde and I'm talking about sex. And that's the only thing that, it, you know, that's why I'm successful. So Guyville has been burnished over time into this perfect yeah. thing. But no, they were, they were maybe not quite... That's when the pop controversy happened. I kind of looked at everyone and I'm like, I've been through this before. I was, I did that for Guyville. Like suddenly the people that I thought were my friends kind of turned on me, the whole neighborhood. 
had an opinion and it was a strong one and it was definitely at best 50-50, whether what I'd done was the worst thing ever or brilliant. Yeah. When you're in that moment, um, and that moment for you lasted a long time. It did. You know, I was like uh, a two-year moment with Guyville, like yeah. not sure what I'd done. So as you're evolving from that, you're moving further into your career and people are resisting you evolving as an artist and being the person you need to be and evolving as a human being also. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're getting older, you're growing up, you have a family, you're, the, the way you view the world and the way you want to be in it is changing too. And you have to let that happen as well as letting your art evolve. When you're moving through all of that, was there a moment, and you're getting pushback along the way. And like you said, you've gotten it from the very beginning. Being the person who never really made a decision early on that said, ooh, I want to be front and center. I want to be on stage. Were there moments along that way where you're like, I'm out? Oh my God, I've quit the music business so many times. <laughs> I do nothing but quit the music business. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm terribly haunted by the notion that if I just not fucked off senior year of high school, I would have gone to a different college and been a totally different person and probably be at home cooking dinner for my kids right now. Like there's a wistfulness I feel for a life that would probably not make me happy at all. But like, it's definitely, it, it has a looming presence in my psyche, this like unlived lives. Yeah. But it's interesting also that you mentioned that because in, so in your memoir, in horror stories, you, you write about this moment where um, you're married, you have a young kid and, and, and life starts to kind of become that, like it kind of moves into more like the white picket fence mode and it's not working out. for you. Right. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah. completely, it's like, no, that other alternative reality, you actually had started living. And the moment you got a bit deep into it, like, you're like, nope, <laughs> nope, this isn't, this isn't it. Yeah. I feel like I kind of went mad for a little minute of time as I have over the course of my life at different points. I go nuts when it comes to cognitive dissonance. I have to say the thing out loud, just like I did for this apartment. I was like, I was like, (laughs) I'm seeing this. I have to say it out loud. Like the emperor has no clothes. I'm that kid for sure. I'm the one going like, did, did anyone notice that the emperor has no clothes? Like I really have compulsively have to call it out and say, and it just blew my mind how quickly upon marriage people come in and say like, well, now you'll join the couples, you know, dinner party circuit. Now can you volunteer for the community? And, you know, it just becomes, you get swept into this and it's the stuff that makes the world go round. It's all the houses and all the families. And I don't really want society to completely change, but I can't do it. Does that make sense? Like I can love and be committed and I love being at home and I love doing, my mom calls it my hearth and home phase. You know, I'm like, let's roast chestnuts. I'm all in on that. But again, the artist is the most fundamental, the artist cannot abide by the rules as they get more numerous and more constricting. I can't do it. I have, the artist always wins. And sometimes it makes me sad because it comes at the expense of, the care I should give some of my friendships or relationships, but the artist always wins. So I don't argue with her anymore. I just, I make as much art as I can. 
Yeah, it is what it is. Um, your career continues to move forward. You end up also, it kind of feels like withdrawing for a while and starting to also write and um, compose, I guess, for TV, um, which is a way for you to do the art to a certain extent and not be so forward-facing. We're sitting here in the studio today and, and sitting across from both of us is, is a, a copy of your brand spanking new memoir and we've kind of touched down on some of the moments in there. But I'm really curious why we're similar aides, right? Um, you've had this really powerful career in music. Bridge the gap to, to the decision to say it's time for a memoir. I was writing almost 10 years before I was writing fiction quietly and privately, kind of like the way I was doing my songs early on in my bedroom. Um, I was working with my agent, Jennifer Gates, who is like basically the wind beneath my wings. She's like basically my everything. And she was encouraging me and she would read the pages and they were bad, you know, and I was trying to grapple with fiction, which is a little too much for me as I was learning to write. But I mean, I put in the time, I put in hours and hours. I did years and years of writing and finally, with the 2016 election, 2015 campaign, when I was seeing things that horrified me going on in this country and rhetoric that horrified me and points of view that horrified me, and it was sweeping across the country at the same time that we were losing Bowie and we lost Prince yeah, and one, we lost... And one year was just... Yeah, uh, no, it was just... It was like the rapture had taken like the best baseball team up to heaven. And I did not know how important these artists were to me until they were gone. And I felt this sense of, my God, I thought they'd always be here. I thought they'd always be here. And my manager called me. I was on tour with the Smashing Pumpkins. The day Prince died, he called me about some other business and we started talking and he goes, you know what, Liz, you know, None of us knows how much we have, how much time we have here. Like, we don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. Nobody knows. Is what you're making right now what you would want to leave behind if it was your last? If that's the last thing you ever did on this earth, is that your legacy that you want to leave behind, what you're doing right now? And no, it wasn't. Like, the record I was making that time was not what I wanted to do. And it wasn't anywhere near. And I felt this, this thing in me roar up and say, like, there's a whole other person besides Liz Fair. Like Liz Fair is a part of a whole person. If it's the event horizon that's coming closer, I'm damned if I'm going out without expressing who I truly am, like my real full self, whether anyone cares about that or not. And that's why I didn't write this memoir. Thank you for doing this comprehensive memoir because I can refer people to your, to your podcast to say, like, if you want to know how here's we got history. it, here's right, the history. Right. That's for someone like you who's really good at it. Like, that's not how my mind thinks at all. I don't even keep present in my mind that I'm even a rock star. Like, that isn't even in my mind 97% of the time. And so I wanted to write like a fresh artist, like a book that would be about being personal and having character and being judged and all the things that I was doing, looking at the television, yelling at the, how can you lie? How can you say that? How can you be so cruel? Blah, 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 blah. What about the times that I've been cruel? What about the times that I've lied? What about the times that I've said things I should never, didn't mean to? What about the times that I've acted outside of my character? 
And this was sort of my way. This stories just started flooding out of me. And when I sent them to my agent, Jennifer, she's like, what is this? These are amazing. And that was my response basically to Trump and that whole Trump nation. No, character matters. Honesty matters. Personal contact and how you treat other human beings matters. But none of us are perfect. And if we could just get past like, do we have the right to yell at people and say, not that way, my way is better? Do we have the right to say that if we can't also accept that we are flawed just like we think they are? Just this, this is my picking up the sword that was there at hand to try to do battle on a very personal front about what I think is important about living and being human. Yeah. the uh, I mean, it was really interesting reading also because like you mentioned, this isn't a, you know, like, this is a story of my life. It's a series of vignettes. And and sometimes they're, you know, like more expansive, but sometimes they're just moments where I think a lot of us have moments like that all the time, but we don't examine them. We don't reflect on them. And we don't kind of think, well, what actually just happened there? And what does it actually say about me, about my values, about the way that I interact with the world? And maybe how might it inform the way that I want those things to be moving forward? I thought it was really interesting how you chose, because that's a very conscious decision, just that structure where you can literally touch down into any of these moments. And they're not big, momentous. Well, some of them are. but, but Some but are very small. Right. And, and you're kind of like, it just, it plants a seed that makes you inquire into yourself. Well, huh. Like, and maybe I've seen a part of myself in that moment. Different fact pattern different circumstance, but sure, I've been there. I've been that person. It's interesting to hear you say like one of the you know, the real reasons that you did it was to start to awaken us to the fact that we've all got stuff that we like and don't like within us. And it's real easy to point it out in other people, but it's, we have to start and own those parts of ourselves as well. We do, or we're not anchored strongly. We're not planting our feet as solidly as we could. We have to own the bad. You also share one chapter. We'll just, people can read the uh, the book to dive into a lot of these different moments. Um, one thing I thought was kind of fun, you have premonitions or omens. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about this. <laughs> Nobody in my personal life likes it when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> you know who liked it? Joe Rogan really liked it. He uh, and I totally, I think he even started using my phrase future science, which I'm reclaiming, Joe. I'm reclaiming it. Um, I think this stuff is real. It's just not understood yet. I take the long view of history and say that like stuff that seems magical and, you know, woo is actually just science. We just don't understand it yet. And yeah, throughout my life, I've had weird, I, I left a lot of it out of the book because the editor was like, nope. Too much. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> right. Not relatable. It's like, what is the most Undermines believable? Undermines credibility. Or, or, or. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not allowed. And I don't get any other answer. My son hates it when I talk about stuff like that. My parents roll their eyes. There's not a person in my life that's like, yeah, tell me more. But it's very real to me. I don't know what's going on or why it happens, but I'm fascinated. I feel like I'm actually like looking ahead to the time 
200 years from now, we know exactly what's going on. And this is like completely normal mechanism of the physical world that we say, yeah, that. It doesn't strike me as so beyond the pale that if we were a predator animal at some point in our evolutionary history, we would develop a sixth sense to tell us when something was looking at us. I can imagine that. I can imagine you really would want eyes in the back of your head. And does that translate into some brain function where telepathy is happening? I kind of think it does. I think that's going on. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's electromagnetism. I have no idea. But like I'm way open to all the exciting mystical stuff, paranormal, way open. But I take a scientist's view of it. Yeah. I mean, you also, you write about in one chapter, um, an experience you have in Shanghai. And I was trying to figure out where you, and you write about driving and, and seeing the word you use as a ghost. I was trying to figure out, were you using that literally or were you using it just sort of, you know, like as a metaphor? <laughs> I used it as a metaphor. Yeah. I used it as like a sense of a person from the past, sort of an archetype from right. a former time that was still in this modern context, doing exactly the same thing he would have been doing, maybe even consciously, deliberately being old world in a modern context. And I saw him as like a ghost but I didn't mean it literally. Although I could have written many chapters about the ghost. <laughs> it's like, the yeah, editor was like, no, Fascinating no, no. for you, Liz, but maybe <laughs> right. not as relatable. Let's do that as a different book <laughs> yeah, under like, a pen name. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's one other curiosity I have, which is that, and you write about this in the book, but I've also heard you talk about it. And, it, and just through the conversation, it seems like a lot of people, when they think about life, they're trying to simplify. They're trying to distill. They're trying to, because they view complexity as stress. I almost feel like you move in the, your, your inclinations to move in the opposite direction to like run towards complexity. You're weirding me out very much right now because you're too good. You're too good. Like that's exactly what, if I had to boost for one side, I think the human animal needs to evolve quickly and efficiently into thinking in complex terms. I think if we don't understand how systems work and we don't start framing our world in a systems type context, we're going to miss how globalization happens. We're going to be behind the times. Complexity is the most important thing we can grow comfortable with, I think, more than anything else on earth right now. We need to be able to think in complex terms, not be, not boil things down to binary terms. I think we're deluding ourselves by not recognizing the complexity around us and trying to stretch our brain. And I think we're doing it already. Like, have you ever left a tab open on your laptop and been listening to music while checking out maybe a politician's thing, while reading and skimming and seeing what messages are coming in? You're already functioning in complexity. It's just a matter of thinking about things a lot of people don't want to think about. Like, And I love to think about that stuff. I love to take a problem or something that happened and sort of worry it in my mind till I get a sense of the whole thing. I try to see other people's points of view on it. I try to, I let it be complex. I, I, that cognitive dissonance that I'm so severely allergic to, I think we're living in an extremely complex world. And I don't mean that in the obvious sense that the universe is complex. I mean, we have created a complex society. We have we have gorged ourselves on complex 
media. And yet we're still resisting. We're still living in the man, woman, you know, it's good or bad, you know, like that kind of thing. It's done. It's over. It's not real. It's a delusion. You must move to complexity, whether you like it or not. I honestly feel like that's the clarion call. Yeah. It's such an interesting approach too, because I think we experience complexity as stress. So in order to, to minimize the stress in our lives, we try and make things binary where your approach is, let me actually see if I can increase my capacity for complexity as a way to actually reduce the stress and just learn how to be okay with it and move into it and just map it and work with it. You're amazing. Like that is like right to the heart of me right there. That is it. Mm. You just completely, I feel like you should go do my interviews for me because <laughs> that's it. I mean, the, the, what happens is, is the death of the ego. If you're going to embrace the system, you're going to have to acknowledge you're a very small part of it and really kind of meaningless. And that doesn't feel good, but it should feel great because on, in another sense, we still haven't found any other life in the universe with all of our very deep, vast telescopes that is like us. We're incredibly special and incredibly powerful and incredibly important. We're also nothing. Yeah, that duality. So good place for us to come full circle. So we're sitting here in this container of the Good Life Project. So if I offer out this phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Love and be loved. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.